Hey y'all, this is Benny, the host of the Last Week at Podcast. Before we really get into this week's episode, I just wanted to say that it's been great fun for me and my co-host Mayank to use this podcast as a medium to chat with an incredible area of guests from all over the world on a variety of topics in the cricketing universe. For a couple of amateur podcasters, this is all possible due to Spotify for podcasters. And if you want to get in on this as well, here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then, you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. As added features, video podcasts are also now available on Spotify. And when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. So if you have an idea for a podcast, give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com podcasters to get started. Hello and welcome to The Last Wicket, a cricket podcast for when you're waiting on your favorite team to play their next match. I'm your host, Benny, and this week we will be speaking with Bertus de Jong. Bertus is a cricket writer with a special passion for associates cricket, and we had the last wicket chat with him about cricket in the Netherlands, what the Super League is all about, the hunt for the ideal cricket World Cup format, challenges faced by emerging cricketing nations, and much, much more. Here is our conversation. Hello and welcome to Bertus. Thank you for joining the last wicket. Oh, pleasure to be here, gents. So, Bertus, uh, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Oh, well, um, yeah, I'm, I'm Bertus. Uh, Bertus de Jong. Some of you may know me from Twitter or um, have come across some things that I've written first, say, Crick Buzz or First Post. Um, I've been covering wild Dutch cricket for about ooh, six or seven years now and uh, associates cricket in general um, for about uh, about four years now for Craig Buzz. Um, and uh, I also like to amuse myself by um, designing alternative uh, World Cup formats. You've seen some of those graphics coming by on Twitter uh, and um, hacking together uh, various tournament simulators and the like on Excel. I did see on your Twitter profile that you mentioned that you're a Microsoft Paint power user. I think that is a, a forgotten skill for many because we moved on from that. Um, but Bertus, uh, I, you know, one of the reasons we you know, had you on this show is obviously to talk about associate cricket and you know, the Super League. Um, and, and I'll admit that like many, I'm not too familiar with the ins and outs of uh, the Super League. Uh, so I'm curious about two things. If you can kind of in a nutshell, explain what the Super League is and what it is designed to do. And also curious about Netherlands and how do you think they're faring in the Super League? Yeah, well, you're not, you're not alone, certainly in, in not being entirely au fait with, with what's going on with the, the Super League. Um, certainly when it started, it seemed like quite a lot of the teams that were playing in it weren't entirely aware of what was going on either. Right. Um, but yeah, so, so the, the Super League is, is essentially the, um, uh, it's a pathway event for World Cup qualification. 
Um, and whereas sort of uh, associate countries have, have always had to go through qualification, they used to go through uh, a different sort of um, tiered uh, series of leagues called the, the World Cricket League. Um, this now includes uh, the full members as well. Um, so rather than qualifying on rankings, as has been the case in the past, um, it's now a partial round robin. So every, uh, um, every one of the 12 full members plays uh, eight, uh, eight opponents. Um, and, uh, and the Netherlands from winning the last World Cricket League Championship uh, back in 2017 uh, qualified for a, for a position on that as well. Um, so that now runs essentially up until uh, 2022 because it's been interrupted a bit by, um, by the pandemic and such. Uh, and then let's see the top, um, the top eight teams from, from that competition then qualify directly for the World Cup or the top seven plus India who also qualifies hosts. Uh, whereas the, uh, the bottom five teams then go into the World Cup qualifier, which is a um, 10 team tournament uh, where two additional teams will qualify. Um, then below the, the, below the Super League, you have, again, still sort of associate competitions, which have been rejigged a bit, but are, are quite similar to, to what the World Cricket League used to be. Um, so you have, you have League Two, which is then the seven uh, next ranked teams, um, which effectively is more or less the same as what the World Cricket League uh, Championship used to be. The, the only thing that they've rejected is the format um, that they play as a series of tri-series rather than, than bilateral series. Um, and then below that, you have two groups of the Challenge League for the rest of the teams down to, I think, 30. So how, how do you think uh, Netherlands are doing now? I know you mentioned the, the one in 2017, but what, what is their current, uh, how's their current performance? So, I mean, they've only, they've had to wait longer than anyone else to get um, started on it. Because uh, they're basically their entire home summer was wiped out by the, by the pandemic. Um, so the Ireland series uh, that we had at the beginning of this month um, was actually their debut in the competition. And there's several teams have already played sort of nine games. This was their first series. Um, it was probably, arguably, one of the two most important series for them as well. Um, because, yeah, one thing I failed to mention is that uh, whereas the bottom five teams um, have to go to a qualifier to get to the World Cup, the bottom ranked team, that is number 13 at the end of the competition, when they go to that qualifier, they're at risk of being relegated from the ODI League next time round. Now, realistically, there's only a handful of teams that, that are in contention for that 13th spot, and the Netherlands is realistically one of them. Um, and prior to the start of the competition, the, the one team you'd think probably most likely to challenge the Dutch for, for the wooden spoon would be either Ireland or Zimbabwe. Um, Zimbabwe have, of course, lost their last series against the Dutch and the Irish, um, and Ireland having probably by most uh, estimates actually regressed somewhat since becoming um, a full member, at least in white ball cricket. So the Dutch would have been targeting this series as that this is A, one of their best chances to get some wins, uh, but also every win they get is one that the Irish don't. Uh, so it's really these were, these were sort of double point games almost. Um, taking that series 2-1, the, the Dutch would have been pretty happy with that, especially seeing as they, they uh, couldn't get a full side um, due, due to a lot of their, basically their entire middle order uh, being stuck in England um, not getting released by their counties. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a strong start for the Dutch. They're still probably more worried about relegation than they are uh, thinking about direct qualification. I think both Ireland and the Netherlands would have wanted to have a 3-0 win. Um, to, to, to realistically start thinking about um, direct qualification at this point. But definitely a very positive start for the Dutch. Now, what are your thoughts on the format, right? Because now the ICC has changed the World Cup format going forward from 2027. But in this cycle, it seemed like, you know, the 
Super League is kind of window dressing to pretend that teams have a chance to get into the World Cup, whereas you have only 10 teams finally. So did you like the format or was it just like pretense from the ICC again? Well, I mean, I, I think the, the format is, I mean, in part is, of course, it's, it's a sort of compromise with necessity. You couldn't, um, especially now that you've got the pandemic, it's like, it's, it's fairly fortunate they weren't planning on doing a complete round robin because they would almost certainly not have been able to. Um, but also, of course, there's political considerations because these are, these are sort of officially still bilateral games, even though the ICC is running the competition, really, they're only running the points table. Right. Um, so you still have political problems, of course, India, Pakistan not being able to play each other. Um, you're right with the with the World Cup uh, looking set to expand to 14 teams, um, which I guess more on that later. But then I don't imagine that this exact format will survive for the next cycle because it it, it doesn't really make sense. Because um, yeah, unless you you have almost all of the teams qualifying direct, uh, so I imagine it'll be rejigged. Um, especially I think now if there's a risk that a, that a full member, especially an established full member like Sri Lanka, might end up because they've obviously had a horrid start. Um, might end up bottom. I think there's a good chance you'll see it either expanding and they might go into, say, a, a 14 or, or even a 16-team competition with two pools. Um, but I don't think that's being really thought about yet. Uh, as it is, for the, the thing is that, that while it is, of course, a, a pathway to, to World Cup qualification, you're right. I mean, India automatically get through and, um, you know, a lot of teams already won't be terribly worried about it. Certainly New Zealand and Pakistan probably don't have to be too concerned. Um, England refuse to be concerned, regardless of how well or badly they're doing. Uh, but it's also just a structure for for, um, for ODI cricket in general. And certainly uh, for the Dutch, it's phenomenal because it gives them sort of more ODIs against full member opposition than they've, they've almost had in their entire history. Um, I think that's the most important feature of it, right? Because you're giving them fixtures. Which is yeah, important to grow as a team, right? Yeah. 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 And of course, the, the competitions below that, I mean, a lot of people sort of sort of forget that you sort of see the World Cricket League used to be this, technically, it's a it's a qualification tournament and a series of qualification tournaments for the Cup. But it's also, for a lot of those teams, basically all the guaranteed international cricket they're going to get. So it's, it is sort of a, you know, an, an end in itself in a way to have this kind of structured competition um, below full, full member level, even for perhaps especially for countries that don't really have any hope of qualifying for a 14 or a 16 team World Cup, much less a, much less a 10 team one that we've got at the moment. So, Bertus, um, let's talk about the ICC's approach to World Cups in general. Um, I know 2007 was, you know, one of those World Cups which had a couple of good upsets, but commercially, obviously, it was not the most viable uh, uh, tournament for ICC and, and they changed their approach. Um, what are your thoughts about, you know, the way they've gone since um, around World Cups and, how has that impacted associates cricket? Yeah, well, obviously, the, the, the move to a 10-team World Cup um, was was pretty much just disastrous for, for a lot of, especially for high-performance um, associates that that really look to target the World Cup and, and for whom it's, it's hugely important. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a backwards move, and, and and I think it was it was protested at the time. Um, in fact, it was successfully protested because it was originally planned that, that um, 2015 would be 10 teams as well. Um, and uh, I think I think I'm, we can all be glad that that the 10 team experiment has been done away with. But more generally, um, my my issue with the ICC approach to tournaments is that it doesn't seem to be um, really optimized for for anything. 
Uh, and it seems to that these decisions are a lot of the time they're based on sort of vague ideas rather than actually looking at how uh, tournament structures work and how, how these formats affect kind of the, the way that the competition unfolds. So you'd have sort of Dave Richardson come out and say, oh, the, you know, the, the wonder of a 10 team uh, World Cup is that we, you know, there won't be any dead games. Uh, games will be more competitive, you know, every game will count. And that's just, I mean, that's just objectively not the case. If you're doing the sort of structure that they used, which was a 10 team round robin and then just a straight cutoff with four teams going to semi finals, that's a guarantee of dead games. And there were dead games and they were very lucky actually with South Africa pulling a win out of the bag. Otherwise, there would have been five or six dead games at the end of that group stage. Uh, and that's, I mean, even with a 10 team format, you can do better. And the ICC do do better. The qualifier for the World Cup is, is a significantly better structure. Um, or even for yeah for the ten team structure they had at the time, having sort of IPL style finals rather than straight semis would have kept that group stage alive for a lot longer as well. And these things don't seem to be considered, and that's something that it seems to me is happening again. Um, from what I understand, the um, the the planned format now for the for the fourteen World Cup um, for the World Cup after next is that they're going to go two groups of seven, which you sort of have to when you've got 14 teams, um, and then go to a super six stage with, again, just the top three going through. And that's essentially, it's, a, it's, a, it's the same formats they used for the, the World Cup in um, South Africa, Kenya, Zimbabwe. And it's a recipe for dead games. It's a recipe for a super six stage where, you know, some teams will likely already be through to the semifinals um, without having to play another game. Some teams will be in a desperate position um, going through to that Super Sixer stage. Uh, and often, like the position they'll be in will depend on points carried forward, which will mean that they're actually going to be quite dependent on who else goes through rather than how they themselves perform on the field. And finally, it's actually a format that carries with it a huge risk of bankable teams not going through, which was the problem in 2007. It was predictable in 2007. And yet, you know, if this is, if you want to go for the most commercially viable, if you basically want to go entirely full greed, this isn't the format you should be picking either. Um, so, you know, while, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm an associates cricket fan as well as being an associates cricket journalist, so I prefer more inclusive formats. But if you're going to have 14 teams, this is, this is a terrible way of doing it. Well, can I ask you what is the ideal World Cup format that you can think of? Because, you know, to preface, well, let, let me add my own thoughts here, because I know for a long time, especially since 2007, you know, there were... Um, a lot of opinions that, oh, look at the soccer World Cup, look at how inclusive they are and look at the stories they've come up with, you know, you know, lesser traditional, you know, soccer nations, so to speak, you know, when they come up with upsets and then there, there was this, you know, trying to extrapolate that with cricket, like, you know, look at, you know, if one of these associate countries could upset one of the major teams. I, rem I remember when Netherlands defeated England in that T20 match uh i forget which year it was it was such a huge boost I think you're probably talking about 2009 but that yeah you could yeah. also be talking about 2014 because they did it then as well i think it was the one where Stuart broad bowled the final over i think that was 2009, yes, anyway. it was yeah, that's, that's yes. 2009. in 2014 so, they beat england and it was not close <laughs> but that's the kind of story that you know people want to see people want to see that in a world cup and there's always this comparison with soccer and how we can make it more, uh, you know, inclusive. But I'm also trying to think of the logistics because 
obviously cricket is so much more different in terms of duration, in terms of resources. Um, I don't really know how we can make it work practically, but do you have your own thoughts on the ideal World Cup format, especially for a 50 over World Cup? What would be the best way to go about it? Well, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky question because there's sort of a, a balance that, that has to be struck. Um, personally, if I, I got to decide myself, I'd say that you, you, 16 is probably at the moment, probably the ideal um, number of teams. Um, with the ambition of moving maybe to 20 uh, down the line. Um, just because if you're looking in terms of having competitive matches, like actually the teams ranked between about 10 and 16 are probably closer to each other than almost any other grouping of teams. Um, but 14 is workable as well. Uh, it's just a question of, yeah, what, what do you want out of the format? Do you, you are sort of limited, I know, by, by, you know, by the, what the broadcasters want um, to have... Uh, I think it's at, at least 45 or perhaps 47 games. So if you say, oh, well, you know, the, the better World Cup should be, you know, quick and to the point and done in three weeks, um, then you're out of luck, basically, because you, it, does, it doesn't serve the purpose um, that the ICC needed to, which is um, generating revenue, which can then hopefully be reinvested in the game um, or just, you know, given straight to full members, as is currently the case. Uh, but yeah, with 14 teams, say if you if you say okay, well we'll start with 14 teams and credit to, to Ireland and Richard Holdsworth for getting us there. Um, you could see again. I think you might, you might be able to put this in the show notes. I've, I've got a couple of graphics up. Um, like my my preferred format would be then that you go um, rather than having a simple cutoff going to uh, semi-finals, that you then um, again you run your uh, unfortunately overlong um, group phase. And then you cannot, you basically you do a, a sort of, um, yeah, how, how to explain it without the, the graphic in front of us a bit hard, but if you consider like the, uh, the way that the IPL works, mm-hmm. um, the final stage there, uh, that you have, say, the top two teams um, play off to go straight through, and then uh, the, the next two teams play off against each other. Um, and then with the loser of the 1v2 game facing the winner of the uh, 3v4 game. Um, okay to get them through to the, the knockouts proper, that essentially will keep the, the group stage from becoming um, sort of a slog where you know a lot of teams will either be through or out um, a long way before the, uh, the actual group stage is finished, um, while actually sort of making a difference uh, as to sort of, you know, it being better to come first and second and third and fourth or the like. So yeah, my ideal system with, with the 17 format is that you then have sort of the first, um, yeah, it's probably going to be hard to follow without the graphic, but the first team uh, in each group goes straight to um, a winner's quarterfinals and then 2v3 uh, playoff against um, the corresponding team from the other group. Uh, 3v4 goes straight to eliminated. Then um, the winner of the two versus three games go and join the, the winners in the winner's quarterfinals. Then the losers from those games play against the winners from the eliminated. Uh, winners of the quarterfinals go to the semis. Um, losers then play against the, gosh this is going on isn't it uh, play against the, the we'll, we'll the definitely put we'll definitely, we'll definitely put a graphic for people who are listening yeah. that'd be an idea impossibly complicated of course um and it certainly does when you explain it like that but uh to draw i mean i don't know if, if uh, your listeners follow follow the soccer at the moment but you know the the euros have been going on here and they have a system where you know they're playing uh groups of four with the 
the top two teams going through and then the best four of the best placed third teams going through. Now that seems simple enough, but if you wanted to work out what a team actually needed to do to get through to the next round, it was completely unknowable. And even down to the last round of group games, you had people going, yes, but if Sweden get through on this goal difference, then that puts them into second, which means that they're not one of the third place teams. So then maybe Finland will go through after all. And you're entirely reliant on sort of neutral games. Um, and if you try and work out, yeah, like what do you have to do to get through to the semis? The answer is, well, it's impossible to know. Whereas with, yeah, the system I propose, you go, well, once you once you top your group, what do you need to do to get to the final? Well, you win two more games, or if you lose two games, then you're out. If you're second or third, win two games, lose two games, and you're out. If you're fourth place, you have to win three games in a row. So the actual, yeah, the actual sort of effect of, of what your team needs to do to get through becomes quite easy to understand once you have a sort of grasp of, of how the format works. And it's not beyond sports fans to do this. It's just used in a lot of competitions. It's used in AFL. It's used in, in sort of TV shows. I first picked up this idea from watching Robot Wars. Yeah, I think there's a lot of fig leaves around this whole thing that, you know, formats could become complicated for fans to follow and that's why you don't use them. But I think these are all fig leaves because you can have complicated formats that are fairer to everyone, but the ICC are too lazy to implement them. And this goes back to the basic question of what do you want from a World Cup? Like, in, in theory, what do you want your World Cup format to be? Does it need to have shock value? Does it need to have shorter group stages? What do you optimize for? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the question. And of course, do you understand you have to strike a balance between commercial considerations and excitement and inclusiveness? And of course, um, trying to make a way, some, some way of mitigating the risk of bankable teams, for which read realistically India, uh, getting knocked out by, you know, in, in an early, at an early stage. So you, you, there's ways you do have to strike a balance with these things and you can go a little bit more one way or a little bit more another. But what the ICC seems to produce regularly is formats that don't optimize for, for any of these considerations. And I think that's what we're looking at again with, with the proposed 14 team format. Um, one that's actually very likely to produce dead games in a very long group stage um, is actually a higher risk of, of Indian not making the Super Six even than, than 2007. Um, and that it doesn't sort of build to a climax, but rather you're, you're likely to get a whole bunch of dead games at the back end of a Super Six stage as well, um, together with, yeah, having teams being hugely reliant on, on sort of neutral results going their way, um, not only to get into the Super Six stage, but to determine how many points they carry with them when they get there. Um, and you can say, oh, well, it's a simple format because it's simple to, to explain, it's simple to design, but to actually follow what a team needs to do to progress um, is is just so Byzantine as to actually be completely impossible to grasp. So it's like it's all very easy format to design if you're sitting in a committee room. It's like, oh, why don't we just do this and then go, you know, groups and then super sixes and semis and done. Um, and I think you're right. I think it is a question of of just of, of laziness at the very top of the ICC, not the ICC itself. There's definitely people at the ICC who know how to how to do better formats because they regularly produce them at qualifying levels. Um, I think it's just basically impatience. Um, once you're at the board level, especially as presumably you've been listening to people um, whine on about how terrible the 10-team World Cup is for ages and you finally give them more than what they want and then you don't want to spend another three hours talking about formats and you just feel, well, you, you should be happy now you've got it. So, yeah. And we should be happy because 14 is still better than 10. It seems like we made progress, but we really haven't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this, I think this... it's leaving money on the table, really. You're like, you've made yeah. progress. They've taken the hard decision and then they 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 
won't take the easy one to just like, well, we've got 14 teams. How can we have the best World Cup we can with 14? Um, and it seems like it hasn't really been looked at. It just hasn't, you know, you, it, to the benefit of nobody. It's not even greed. It's just, yeah, just lack of imagination. I know that briefly, uh, I'm pretty sure it was the ICC who said this or someone from the ICC mentioned this, that T20 World Cups are a better avenue for associate countries to show their wares, whereas a 50 over uh, World Cups can be for the, you know, the traditional test playing countries uh, is just a lot more challenging than T20s. Uh, do you think there's still any truth to that? Just because I feel like things have changed a lot in the last few years with even associate countries improving a lot in 50 over format. I think actually that's a very interesting question. Um, and it's one that I would really like someone who's a bit um, more dedicated uh, to going through um, running statistics databases uh, to actually in examine empirically. But I think it's a very interesting question. There's kind of an assumption that um, there's less of a gap in quality in the T20 game uh, and that because it's a shorter format, it tends to lend itself to upsets, um, which in, in sort of it could well be true. And I, I think it may be true, um, but I don't think it's ever actually been examined. And I'm, the very interesting question is whether it's likely to stay true because enormous amounts of resources at the top level are now being dedicated to T20. It generates a lot more money. Um, so when you consider the, the sort of amount of strategizing and, and, and specialization that you now get, it's being driven by, by the IPL as much as by anything else um, at the very elite level. Uh, I, I suspect that, that if it hasn't already, I think that the gap between the top teams in T20 will eventually be, be larger than it is um, in ODIs, especially because those those um, associate countries who, who have ODI status and reg or regularly play 50 over cricket, which is, is still only the, the top 20 associates, um, they don't have, they, they're not going to be able to move towards this sort of specialization where you have almost separate squads for, for the longer format and the shorter format. Right. Yeah. Because they, they can barely afford to pay a full squad. Um, so you'll see that I think actually that, that in the 50 over game, whether it's the case at the moment, uh, I'm not sure. I, th I think you might well find that, that T20, you're, you're more likely to get upsets, but whether it's going to stay that way, I'm, I'm not so sure. So um, I think we've talked about the World Cup quite a bit, um, but the other tournament that comes to mind is the Intercontinental Cup. Um, you know, that was obviously a good pathway for, you know, associate teams to get in test cricket. I know Peter Delapena himself wrote an article for Cricket for not too long ago, talking about how it was also a really good learning curve for associate teams. Um, what are your thoughts about the ICC having done away with that? Um, and do you think that's also something that could have been, you know, an important feature in the associate calendar? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a great shame. And I, I do recommend everyone read that, that, um, that PDP piece, actually, because it is excellent. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great shame that, it, it's been, that it's been done away with, um, just sort of quietly. But it, it's also sort of inevitable. And this was a, a decision, as I understand it, that the ICC took. Um, in consultation with the associates, but it's it's just a question of budget. Um, for as long as full members insist on, on taking um, the lion's share of, of ICC revenues um, as, as direct payouts to themselves, um, the events budget just isn't there to run a 14, you know, four day cricket is, is expensive. You, if you have to, you know, you have to pay these teams to get out there, you have to put them up in hotels, you have to hire the grounds and stuff and, and the logistics of it made it by distance that the most expensive uh, pathway event that the ICC were running. Um, and they ran it then alongside the, the old World Cricket League Championships, the, the ODI competition. 
or the one day competition as it was then, it didn't have ODI status. Um, so that the same teams would participate, um, meaning that you could actually just co-locate the tours um, and the, defray the travel costs. And that became less practical as well because you sort of see that there was a decoupling between countries that were getting good at 50 over cricket and, and countries that were, were interested in, and um, dedicated to um, continuing playing first class cricket. So it became essentially a choice between um, continuing to run uh, the 50 over World Cup pathways um, at something close to the level that the, the old World Cricket League um, used to provide uh, and and or, or the, the Intercontinental Cup, which would only really benefit a handful of associates. Uh, and yeah, that's the decision that they ended up taking. And it is a great shame because it's effectively saying um, that the door is, is closed for uh, future test members and that there's no ambitions in that direction. Um, and you see that, yeah, that the... the the, the Dutch and the Scots and, and to, to a lesser extent the, the Nepalese and, and even Namibia are now um, concentrating less or barely playing any red ball cricket at all. Uh, and it, yeah, that is, you know, that's then used retro, retrospectively as a justification. So we're going, oh, well, why bother with the Intercontinental Cup? None of these, none of these countries play red ball cricket. So well, they don't play red ball cricket because there's, there's no pathway or funding attached to it. Um, and, but it's, I, I, I don't see it coming back, at least not in um, not in that that form, unless there's there's a, a proactive decision which which the four members go along with to to open up more funding for it, um, because it's expensive. It's just, it's always been a very expensive competition to run, and yeah, it is a, it's a great shame because I think it affects um, not only does it kind of stifle test ambition where there may have been some. Certainly, I know Scotland were looking in that direction before and are no longer are. Um, but I think it also it also affects the technical skills of a lot of the players there. And I'm not sold that you have to excel or have learned first class cricket to be a good white ball cricketer. But I I think that it, I don't think it hurts. Yeah. So this this sort of goes back to what I thought that you know you're you're moving towards a future where it's financially like disincentivized to play multi day cricket, right? And the question is whether you can build cricket in a country without playing first class cricket. Because it doesn't seem viable for teams to aspire for test status anymore, and there's no pathway. So, can you can you build the game in a country without first-class cricket? Well, I think you certainly can, because um, I I think that's that's entirely possible. Um, if you look at sort of I mean, cricket in in the Netherlands has existed for for well over for almost a, a century and a half, um, and while they played cricket with a red ball in white uh, for most of that. Um, multi-day cricket was a bit of a rarity. They used to be one-off games every now and then that you play multiple cricket, but there certainly wasn't a structure. And a similar story in Denmark. Denmark has had cricket for you know well over a century as well. Um, and I think where you're seeing a lot of the growth in the game, uh, you, you you don't see it necessarily being driven by by multi-day cricket. Um, so whether I think it's necessary, um, probably probably it's not. Uh, but whether I think you're losing something there, and certainly I think you are, and I, th I think there's a risk. There's a kind of an assumption, a weird assumption in cricket that once a country gets good at cricket, they sort of stay good at cricket forever. Um, and that, that, that this sort of sinecure of, of full membership means that, you know, people start, start clasping their pearls whenever Sri Lanka or the West Indies have a, a bad run of form and they go, oh no, what if it's the death of cricket there? So you don't have to have the same teams being good at a sport. You know, football isn't you know football isn't any less of a sport because because Hungary aren't in the World Cup final anymore. Um, 
yeah, in, in, in an ideal scenario, you would have a, a competition below um, the World Test Championship um, with promotion and relegation. And I think that the status is, is a bit of a red herring, like whether you call them tests or whether you only call them top level tests, um, I don't think that matters massively. I think what you do have to accept, though, is that, that sporting trends change um, and sports grow and, and uh, or are become you know, sort of less um, attractive in, in, in countries. And that's not something that you can or, or should even really try to prevent. It's also a question of sporting culture, um, I think. I mean, if I, if, if I think about the United States and cricket in the United States, I cannot see test cricket taking off here. <laughs> You know, when I when I talk to my friends here about, well, let, just starting with the short formats, right? They when I tell them about the twenty over T uh, twenty, they can understand a little bit because the NFL games are what pretty much about the same amount uh, in terms of duration, and they have plenty of breaks as well. Fifty over, they just they cannot grasp that we would play played for eight hours uh, a day, and Test cricket, forget it it's always like you play for five days and there's a possibility that you will not get a result. Like, why would you even bother playing that? Like, so that's the kind of mentality or that's the kind of like sporting culture that exists here, but, you know, in a country where uh, American football and basketball and baseball, these are like the staple sports. So I don't know how it is in Netherlands and in most associate countries where cricket does not have a big history behind it, you know, does not have a big culture behind it. Uh, which is why I think test cricket, it, it's it's easier to promote T20s and even 50 over uh, cricket to an extent. Test cricket just faces a challenge in terms of expansion is what I think. Yeah, I think that's, I think there's probably some, some truth in that. Um, although it's it's sort of, well, certainly here in the Netherlands, I know that, that generally if, if people are cricket fans, they will absolutely watch test cricket. Um, they just won't be able to play it because it's, I think the biggest obstacle to to multi-day cricket is simply that um, you you need to be able to take four days off work to play, play a game. So unless you're a professional cricketer, um, or you're yeah, you have some sort of sponsor or some sort of you know sufficient lifestyle flexibility that you can play a game of cricket for 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 three or four or five days, um, it's just not viable. And I I think that's that's the, the major difficulty with with amateur um, with amateur cricket. Uh, and, you know, in associates countries, most cricket is still amateur, um, that as a growth vehicle for participation, I can, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's really um, necessarily the way to go, but I think still as an aspiration, I think it shouldn't be underestimated. And yeah, American, American sporting culture is, is, is arguably different, but, um, you know, a game of baseball goes on pretty much all day as well. Uh, and, and Americans are, are perfectly happy to watch golf tournaments, of course, as well, which go on, go on for absolutely for ages. Um, I never get that. Well, <laughs> but this is the thing. I'm not sure that a sporting event that unfolds over the course of a week is necessarily something that is is um, absurd or alien to, to almost any culture. And I think also sort of modern culture, sure, you can't actually sit down and watch um, every day and, and every over of a test unless you're um, in the fortunate position of, of um, being sort of um, independently wealthy and unemployed. Uh, but you know, it's actually easier to follow a test. Um, mm -hmm. these days than it than it than it was say 20 or 30 years ago in the days before Twitter in the days before video clips in the days before you know being able to just check the scores on cricket folks um, right. so I'm, I'm not convinced that as a growth vehicle I think that that generally cricket tends to undersell itself as a, a sport with with potential to appeal to more people and, and 
yeah, I mean, breaking America's thing is that generally speaking is that the way that cricket has worked in, in the United States in, in modern years is that it, it tends to, it has, you know, under the old USACA administration, it was very much run for the benefit of the administration um, and, and very few others. Uh, and, and these days with, with ACA um, coming in, it, it really, it looks like it's sort of about building a product in America to sell back to India um, without any particular concern about, you know, building at the grassroots. And the grassroots is always going to be difficult for the states because it's so geographically removed, um, you know, one, one, you know, cricket league from another. And that you, you know, you, you tend to have these kind of very strong local identities and leagues and they're often sponsored by someone who said it's that it's it's sort of a very fractured cricket scene compared to a lot of other countries and i think it's very difficult to get everyone pulling in the same direction in the united states um especially if that direction is really growing the game and trying to take it mainstream within the united states rather than you know um playing recreationally for fun because you like it or um, running a league because you know you get to be the you know big fish in a small pond or right at the top, which is trying to put together, a, you know, major league cricket, which realistically you're, you're trying to just sell back to India. In U.S. cricket in particular, what I've noticed over the last couple of years is there's been a lot of, uh, there's been almost a trend to, you know, attract expats, whether it's Corey Anderson from New Zealand, uh, former Indian under-19 players uh, to really improve the results of the senior team. And I was chatting with Peter Delapena about this, and he agreed that, you know, while this is a good short-term goal, it really doesn't help building the grassroots level uh, of U.S. cricket or, you know, really bringing excitement to that level and, and you know, having a more long-term strategy. Um, is it similar with Netherlands and other associate nations? How, how have you seen that um, pan out? Um, I mean, I'm not sure that, again, the Dutch are really the best example of this these days. Um, it definitely used to be the case that ahead of major tournaments, um, someone would be sent out to scout some passports. Uh, but actually, these days the opposite is true. Where, where um, I think under under Ryan Campbell, the, the policy is that unless you have first class commitments during Dutch summer, you have to be living and playing in the Netherlands to be considered for selection. Um, so there's there's actually a move against. Uh, and even though if you look at the makeup of the national team at full strength, you see a lot of um, yes, yeah, South African born or or, uh, or New Zealand born um, players. I think that's that's as much a function of the fact that the Netherlands is a small country with a very large diaspora in cricket playing countries. Um, and especially in South Africa, you're getting a lot of migration back to the Netherlands from South Africa now, irrespective of the game. So if you sort of look at players like like uh, Rulof on the Neve or, or Wesley Baracy is maybe even a better example. Is, is, uh, Wesley Baracy didn't move to the Netherlands to cricket. He moved to the Netherlands to move to the Netherlands and then happened to be playing cricket. And the same is true of, say, Eric Swaczynski and a lot of others. So you're always going to see that um in the netherlands and that's not to say that it hasn't gone on in the past and it doesn't go on in, in other countries i know that um if you take say uh oman um less the united arab emirates these days they, they certainly used to do this bit in the past the sort of scouting pakistan with first class players and then getting them to come over and play for a club with a view to qualifying um oman have definitely done that in the past as well um but i think it's because there's so much of funding is it sort of attached to the performance of the the men's national team um and now in, in fact the women's as well the ICC have at least said that performance based criteria are, are going to be uh, the same for, for men and women um, but because of that you can't really afford not to do it if everyone else is doing it um, and even Ireland now are, are, you'll see that they've got an awful lot of 
guys with um, no particular connection to Ireland playing in uh, the interprovincial competitions with a view to them qualifying for Ireland at some point, just because, yeah, because that's because performance is is, um, is so crucial uh, because it's so highly weighted. Um, and because there's these different classes and different tiers that you can fall, that you can, you know, you can break into or fall out of if you don't perform on the field, um, that kind of competitive pressure is, is going to lead to that temptation. And in the case of the United States, it gets a bit extreme because, um, yeah, they, they, they are sort of, I guess, going shopping is, is how you put it. Um, but that, yeah, that's a function of, of just how cutthroat and competitive associates cricket is. Is that detrimental in the long term? Or like well, the don't, cricket in the country? I don't think it necessarily has to be. Um, at the end of the day, um, it, it's, it's almost kind of irrelevant uh, when it comes to, to development, to sort of development and, and, and national team performance, the one can feed into the other, but the other doesn't necessarily. So national team performance doesn't necessarily drag a lot development in, in um, the way that, that firm and, and solid development structures will eventually feed a national team. Um, the Corsana doesn't really go that way, but whether it's, it's not, it's never going to be detrimental um, to perform on the field. Uh, and, yeah, you sort of you, when you get to the situation where the national team is entirely made up of foreign-born players who are, who are literally sort of bust in or flown in for games, then of course that's going to discourage. Um, that's that's kind of that will discourage sort of local youth talent and the like. But when you when you sort of hear and you do hear this sort of grumbling in, in the Netherlands quite a lot of like, oh well, you know they've got some South African in, so my nephew doesn't get to play. Um, how can we expect to motivate youth players when, you know, when they've got no chance of making the national side as well? If you look at successful sports, um, basically no youth player has a chance of making the national side. Uh, there's plenty of kids in the Netherlands playing hockey and playing football that don't, aren't doing it because they think that one day they're going to play for Holland. Um, or at least, you know, once you get past the age of about six or seven, I think you probably know whether you've got a chance or not, that, but they don't stop playing. If your only way of motivating kids to play, to play cricket is is because you say, well, if you do, if you go well at the weekend, you'll, you'll play for your country. And so, well, then you, you've probably already set your cap of your entire youth system to about 100 kids and no more. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not really convinced by the argument that it puts, that it puts off the youth um, to have, um, you know, a few uh, foreign born players coming up. And I also don't think that, you know, whereas proactively hunting them, I think is, is a bit, yeah, I, it's a bad look um, and it doesn't. I think long term it won't help, um, but you also like if you have a player who has that nationality. So if, you know if you have say Hayden Walsh showing up in the in, in the US and wanting to play for the US, um, or if you have yet yeah, someone like uh, Ryan Klein here and moving to the Netherlands and trying to break into the, the Dutch team, you I think you can't morally, but in a lot of countries also you can't really legally say well no you can't we're not going to pick you because we've got like a quota of the most amount of people born abroad to play for us like that's if, if you're not picking on merit then eventually you're just you're just picking on politics and i don't think that's a particularly helpful way to go either um the one question that comes to mind is so what is your suggestions for improving associates cricket i know it's a broad question but uh <laughs> i think really the the way i think about it is you know for any game to develop there has to be a good grassroots level you know having a school structure to start with maybe and then a more um you know underage under whatever 14 under 11 that that sort of structure uh, what are your thoughts about that and where do you think the various associate nations um, stand on, on that ground? Uh, well, it is, a, it is a very broad question. And 
um, I don't think there is any one size fits all answer because like sports culture is very different in, in different countries. So you say, so I'll build up a school system, but like here in the Netherlands, the idea of like competitive inter-school sports is it's not really normal. Like sporting life is built around clubs rather than around, around schools. Um, whereas for, yeah, like in the United States, like it, it's college sports, it's, it's a colossal thing. Like it's, it's huge, it fills stadiums, people watching college sports. The idea of filling stadiums to watch a university football team play in England would be just laughable. Like nobody would really even understand what you're saying. So I don't think there is, in terms of that's in terms of development, I don't think there is really a sort of one size fits all um, solution. And in that respect, it, it probably is best left to some extent to the discretion of, of, of local boards, how they want to go about it. But on the other hand, what you have seen since the ICC has moved to a more direct funding model, um, that you've seen a lot of established countries going backwards and used to have sort of regional bodies of the ICC that would organize youth tournaments from sort of under 12s all the way through to sort of under 15s, under 17s. So these have all sort of disappeared. Um, so I guess, yeah, broader look, and it's easy to say that more funding needs to be, to be diverted towards the development of the game, but it, it really, just going back to the to a model where you had sort of six percent, the six percent um, top line uh, allocation to development from ICC revenue, that that would be a colossal step forward, even if it's actually only getting back to where you were before. And I'm not saying that necessarily needs to be distributed to associate boards. I just think the ICC do development; they do events very well, and um, with quite a small team. So I don't really like to be harsh to the ICC, but a lot of the people work, who work there do do an awful lot with very little. Um, I think you're also, again, to, to sort of give them some credit, they are moving in the right direction. You're sort of seeing that they are doing a little bit better in terms of promoting sort of pathway events, you're getting a little bit more towards sort of these pathway events being streamed and available. Um, but yeah, there's only so much that a global body can actually do. The sort of growth has to be organic. Uh, I mean, with the exception of the one colossal thing that they could do, which is to, to do everything they can to get cricket into the Olympics, um, because that that would be a game changer in terms of, of development funding for, for almost every associate country in the world. And that's, I mean, it's, it's essentially just free money that the ICC does not have to spend on development and irrelevant even what format or which teams end up playing in the Olympics. It would be, it would be transformational for a lot of associate boards. Oh, and yeah, sorry, which, <laughs> which countries are probably doing the best? I think the, the obvious answer is, is Nepal. Um, it's impossible to watch the game of cricket in Nepal and not see that immediately. Uh, and again, that is, but that's sort of, you sort of feel that is organic. That's, that's happened organically. I don't think you can necessarily credit the former um, Cricket Association of Nepal um, prior to their suspension, expulsion and readmission to necessarily doing particularly good work there. And that's something that's happened organically, really. Um, organizationally, Scotland have been very strong. Um, uh, and but yeah, then if you compare that to just how it's worked in Afghanistan, which is again cultural spillover, um, I'm, I'm not sure there's a really you can you can you can put everything in place, um, but you can't yeah there's there's no there's no real substitute for for yeah just for for this sort of cultural development for for essentially kids growing up watching something and wanting to do it. Right. No, that, that's very true. I have a few Nepalese friends and, and you know, I've seen them follow Indian cricket for so long that I think that's also part of it. Like just seeing their neighbors participate in the sport and play the sport has, you know, organically grown the interest. Well, on, on that note, Burtis, uh, we want to thank you so much for your time today. And I know that for plenty of our listeners, 
you know, again, our understanding of associate cricket and, you know, the Super League and, and so on, it's very surface level. So to hear you shed some light on that and just to hear, uh, you know, some of the stories of how things are developing and growing and really improving. Um, I, I think, you know, we, we can kind of pick things here and there about how things can be done better. But if I think back to 10, 15 years ago, we wouldn't really be talking about associate cricket. Um, um, so I, I think we have, we've made some good strides in, in that respect. And, um, you know, as all cricket fans, you know, we want to see the game grow and develop in other countries. And the day we can all agree on the best format for the World Cup, I think <laughs> it will be a great day. Uh, so again, thank you so much for your thoughts and uh, really appreciate you uh, and your time. Uh, cheers, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, that's it for this episode of The Last Wicket. A special thanks to Burtis for his time and perspectives. Please check out our show notes for links to his Twitter handle, as well as a visual representation of what an ideal World Cup format could look like. Meanwhile, if you enjoyed this conversation, do rate and subscribe to this podcast to be notified of new episodes, follow us on your social media feeds, and leave us a voice message if you would like to share your thoughts with us. Thank you for listening, and from all of us here at The Last Wicked, stay safe and stay healthy. Mm-hmm.